So if you, if you have your Bibles, open it to uh, Hebrews chapter 7, and um, let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are our righteousness, you're the king of glory, you're the king of hope. There's none like you. Uh, you paid for our sins on the cross, you conquered our death when you rose from the grave. Uh, this world will fail us, the government will fail us, friends and family will fail us, you will never fail us. You are unfailing. Your salvation will never fail us. Your righteousness will never fail us. Your forgiveness will never fail us. Your love will never fail us. There is none like you. It is such an honor to worship you, to save you, to serve you, to be saved by you. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, we've been in a series on Hebrews, and we're picking up today with Hebrews chapter 7. So just... There's a Bible in front of you. If you'd like to follow along, just go to the uh, far right, Revelation, flip a few uh, books to the left, and you'll be in Hebrews. And thank you for your prayers. I had a surgery on my shoulder this past Wednesday. I just had the uh, labrum, the torn labrum and torn muscle fixed up. And um, so the recovery is going surprisingly well. So I appreciate your prayers very much. Thank you. All right. Hebrews chapter 7. Um, I'm really excited to, uh, to teach this and for us to be drawn closer to Christ together. Uh, let me begin uh, with this story, a great story by Lucado, and um, no wonder they call him Savior. Max Lucado writes about a poor Brazilian girl named Christina who grew up in a poverty-stricken neighborhood, and she wanted to see the world. Christina was discontent with a home having only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of a better life in the city. And one morning, Christina decided to make it happen. She left her mother, she slipped out, and she ran away, and she broke her mother's heart. Her mother's name was Maria. Maria knew what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter. So Maria hurriedly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. Maria sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, stared into the camera, and spent her entire life savings, every last dime she had, on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, Maria boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew her daughter had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with the reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to the mall. And at each place, she left a picture of herself, taped on the bathroom mirror, tackled, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner of a phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before Maria's uh, money and pictures ran out, and she had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. 
Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she'd longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet this little village girl was, in too many ways, too far from home. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. The book of Hebrews is really about God placing photos of himself to his people saying, It doesn't matter what you've done or what you've become, please come home. And doesn't God still place photos of himself for us today? A beautiful sunrise as God whispers to our hearts, I miss our fellowship, please come home. Sometimes God hangs his photo in the night sky against glistening stars as he rejuvenates our heart and reminds us of the promises that he once spoken to our heart. And he says, the promises remain. Please just come home. Sometimes we see a photo of God and a stranger who smiles at us or, or a, a faithful friend who stands by our side or even a pet whose loyalty has no end. God says, please come home. Now, these photos are not God, but they're invitations of God to come home. And in the book of Hebrews, chapters 7, 8, and 9, it is an extremely complex uh, flow of thought. It's a flow of thought that I have I've spent uh, this entire week reading over and over and over and reading commentaries on and and I have no doubt that that I will I will preach this insufficiently because we will be in heaven for 10,000 years and still exploring the depths and the glory of what's unpacked here in these three chapters. But at its essence, Hebrews 7, 8, and 9 provides a photo of God where he says to his people, come home. And this photo is extraordinarily multidimensional. It's extraordinarily multifaceted. It is multi-generational as it spans centuries. It's a photo that he paints in incredible detail, again, through the centuries, through generations, through various elements, in the most dramatic metaphor of his love, saying, come home to his people. Um, So a quick backdrop of this photo that God suspends for his people, we have to be introduced to something called the Levitical Priesthood. Now, the Levitical priesthood derives from one of Father Abraham, the founder of the, the Hebrew faith, the, 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 the chief patriarch of the Hebrews, his great-grandson, whose name was Levi. In fact, um, Abraham had 12 great-grandsons, and each of these great-grandsons were the head of various tribes whose heritage and whose lineage comprised of the Hebrew people. We, we know that one of these grandchildren were named Judah, our Lord and Savior Jesus. He came from this lineage. 
there was Benjamin and uh, 12 tribes. And one of these patriarchs, of these great-grandchildren of Hebrews, his name was Levi. Now, when the Hebrew people entered into the promised land, when they were even crossing the wilderness, uh, the, the generation that derived from the Hebrews, they were uh, given the specific task of carrying out the responsibility of priestly duties for the Hebrews. So all the other tribes, they went into the land and they tilled their land and they had their own land. But if you were from the Hebrews, you didn't get land. Instead, your responsibility was to carry on priestly duties. And all the other 11 tribes would pay tithes to this one uh, branch of, of Abraham's descendants called the Levites. Now, not all Levites were priests, but all priests were certainly Levites. And if you weren't a priest and yet you were a Levite, then you were uh, one of the hundreds of thousands of people who served the tabernacle and who served the temple and who made sure that, the, the, that everything was in place and who served the priests. It was an incredible honor to be of the tribe of the Levites. Because as we've talked about the responsibility of priests before as a, a priest stands before God and communicates to God on behalf of the people. And this um, very uh, laborious, very detailed, very structured, very systematic responsibility of the Levites revolved around the temple or the tabernacle. So uh, the tabernacle would have been a build, uh, it would have been a building about the size of this auditorium, about exactly the size of this auditorium. Now, now, right down here on the front row, there would have been a curtain, probably about as tall as the building, and the curtain would have gone from the very top of the ceiling all the way down to the floor, and it was a thick curtain. Now, on the, on the other side of the curtain, on the front side of the curtain, that was a portion of the tabernacle called the holy place. You guys say the holy place. Very good. And when they entered into the, the, uh, the tabernacle, or when they entered into the curtain, this portion of the tabernacle or the temple was called the Holy of Holies. So you guys say the Holy of Holies. Holy. All right. So this tabernacle com was comprised of two rooms, the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies was a pretty incredible room. The Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. Did you guys see the Raiders of the Lost Ark some years ago? The Ark of the Covenant, that's what that was. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had on it a mercy seat. And something very specific happened to this mercy seat. Now, inside the Ark of the Covenant were some really uh, incredible artifacts from the Hebrew faith. Now, when Moses descended the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he had the tablets of stone, those tablets of stone were in the Ark of the Covenant. Pretty incredible, wasn't it? They actually had a jar of when God fed the Israelites in the wilderness, heavenly manna. He provided for them every day, and they put this heavenly manna in a jar. That was inside the Ark of the Covenant. It's amazing, isn't it? Moses' brother-in-law, uh, the first high priest, his name was Aaron, and he had a, a staff, and it had died. It was a, just a dead stick. And through the resurrection life, it budded. And that stick, Aaron's staff that budded, was in the Ark of the Covenant. 
And so it was a really incredible place, the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. Now, it was very important that you understood that not just anybody could go into the Holy of Holies. There was only one person that could go into the Holy of Holies, and that, he could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year, and he was the high priest. And when he went from uh, the holy place through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, he had to have something with him. And that something was called blood. It wasn't his own blood, but it was the blood of a goat or lamb that was sacrificed. Now, that goat or lamb didn't remove any sin. And yet, year after year, the entire uh, nation of, of the Hebrews, they would gather around this temple. They would slaughter a lamb or they would slaughter a goat. The priest would take its blood. He would walk from the holy place into the holy of holies. He would dip his finger in the blood, and then he would sprinkle that blood onto the mercy seat that rested on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that symbolized that the people would no longer have to, have to pay for their sins because that, that goat that was slaughtered paid the price on their behalf. A pretty interesting ceremony, isn't it? And it occurred without fault year after year after year. And so we fast forward time. Jesus was born and he spread out his arms on the cross and he paid for our sins, and he cried out, it is, a fin- it is finished, or law, which means it is accomplished, which means all of the sins of the world have been paid for. It's a legal term. It's, a, it's, it's an accounting term. For example, if you went into the market and you bought a piece of meat and you would give them money and they would give you the meat and they would give you a receipt and they would stamp on the receipt, law, price paid in full. If you committed some crime and they threw you in prison for, say, two years, then after the two years, you would leave the prison and they would give you your papers and stamp across it, take taste the law, price paid in full. So when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, take taste the law, price paid in full for your sins and my sins. And what is absolutely fascinating is that when Jesus gave up his spirit and he died, Across Jerusalem, in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the curtain that only the priest could access, and that only once a year, was torn in two by the invisible hand of God from the top to the bottom, which means that God's people no longer need a priest to go through, a a, a man, a human to go through once a year to sacrifice the blood of lambs because... And to summarize what we've been talking about so far, that entire Levitical system was simply a photo of God and the work that he would accomplish on the cross saying, come home. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what you've become. Just please come home. All of those animals were Simply pictures of Jesus who would give himself up for us. They weren't the reality. They were just a picture of the reality to come. I remember uh, just when I was a kid and we would drive from uh, Lubbock to, 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 West, uh, to, uh, to some other places in West Texas like Brownfield and La Mesa to visit my grandparents. We, we, we had the, the, the road signs memorized that said, 
you know, this town that we're coming up is so many miles, and then this next town is so many miles, and then the next town is so many miles. And in the same way, this Levitical system of sacrificing the animals, it was simply a road sign saying, the real town is coming up. The, what this road sign is pointing to is on the way. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to the Hebrews because they had entered into the reality of what the picture represented. They had entered into the reality of what the road signs pointed to, and they had tasted of salvation in Christ, but now they're wanting to go back to the road signs, and they're wanting to go back to this Levitical system, and the author of Hebrews is writing them and saying, Why in the world would you want to go back to the Levitical system? It is simply a copy of the reality, and it is far inferior to the reality, because the entire Levitical system never removed sins, not from one single person. Never. In Hebrews chapter 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, we read, If perfection or salvation, the forgiveness of sins, being righteous enough to enter into heaven. Chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. And here we are introduced to a mysterious character in the Bible, and his name is Melchizedek. And what's interesting about Melchizedek is that he served the office of a priest before the lineage of the priest was ever established through Moses and Aaron and the Levites. In fact, Melchizedek lived before the Hebrew people were ever created through Abraham's offspring. So Melchizedek was not only not a Levite, Melchizedek was not even a Hebrew, because the Hebrew people did not yet exist when Melchizedek lived. So who is this Melchizedek? He was a king. Melchizedek, Melchizedek means righteousness. He was the king of righteousness. And his kingdom's name was Salem, which is an ancient name for Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. So we have this towering figure in the Old Testament before the Hebrew people were ever established, a king of righteousness who reigned over a kingdom called peace. And he had a very interesting encounter with a man named Abraham, the chief patriarch that the Hebrews most looked up to when Abraham was returning from a battle in which God had greatly blessed him. He ran into this mysterious king of righteousness who reigned over peace. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And we see right there that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because the greater blesses the lesser. But not only that, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews goes on to make the interesting point, not only did Abraham tithe to Melchizedek, but interestingly, the entire Levitical priesthood also tithed to Melchizedek, even though they weren't yet established, they were still in Abraham's loins. And so Melchizedek is so great that he blessed Abraham. And Melchizedek is so great that the entire Levitical priesthood tithed to Melchizedek. 
And then to firmly establish his point, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is a priest, but he's from the tribe of Judah. What priests come from the tribe of Judah? Well, there's only one, and his name is Jesus. But he's such a great priest that he is not a priest of the order of the Levites, but rather he is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And so with that, he establishes his point. Why in the world would you want to return to the blood of animals that has never removed a sin when that is only a copy of the reality of Jesus Christ who died once and for all to remove our sins? And so with that, we summarize this um, with three action steps in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And we read, Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely. And we talked last week, and in case you've ever wondered about where you stood on the doctrine of eternal security or perseverance of the saints or once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation, I really encourage you to go to our website, hopeworks.us, or Facebook page, and listen to this doctrine of eternal security uh, that, that we unpacked from Hebrews chapter 6 last week. But we read in uh, chapter 7, verse 25, that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Isn't that incredible? And from that, we see that Jesus saves completely and he lives to intercede for us so that we can always seek him and we can always draw near to him. So these are our action steps. One is to rest in Christ's complete salvation, to draw near to him as he lives to intercede for us. So let's start with this action step of, of resting completely in Christ's salvation. So I heard, a, I heard a pastor once talk about that he was witnessing to this girl and she really lived in the world and she was really far from God and she didn't think that God wanted anything to do with her. And so he finally was able to convince her to come to a church service and, and uh, it was a, like a Monday night Bible study for college students and single adults and, and he has this girl uh, but, you know, right beside her and right beside him. And he's so grateful that she's there and she's going to be able to experience the felt presence of the Holy Spirit through worship and she's going to be able to hear of the love of Christ and how, how God wants her to, to come home and, and he's just so grateful that she's there and she finally responded because she's always been so skeptical of Christ and Christians and Christianity and the gospel and thought surely that God would, would never have anything to do with her. And so he's sitting beside her. I mean, she is his trophy. He is so grateful and so proud that she's there. And so the, 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 the guy who's speaking that night gets up and he's talking about sexual purity that night and holiness and that sort of thing. And so he begins his, his talk with an object lesson and he holds up a flower. And he says, see, this, this flower is like our purity. It's like our righteousness. It's like our holiness. And he says it's very soft and, and it's very beautiful. And he says, I, I want everybody just to, just to see how soft this is. And you guys just pass it around the room. And so they're pa- this is a, it's a big room and, and they're just passing it around it. You know, they touch it, they turn it around, they feel it, they pass it to the next person, they smell it, touch it, feel it, pass it along to the next person. And, 
and this guy is giving his whole talk on sexual purity, and, and then by the time that this flower makes its way back up to the speaker, then the guy kind of brings home his point, and he holds up the flower, and by now it's wilted, and the rose petals had fallen off, and it's no longer beautiful, and it looks very abused, and, and then the speaker says something like, and he's, he's trying to make his point on the importance of sexual purity, and the speaker makes his point by saying something to the effect of, he holds up the flower and he says, see how damaging sin is. Who would want this flower? Who would want this flower? And the pastor who had that friend by his side, he said that the anger just boiled inside of him. And it was all that he could do not to stand up and shout out at the speaker in front of everybody else. Jesus would want that flower. That's why he came. He came for the least of these. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And he didn't come to establish a, a, a building, of, of, of a museum of saints, but rather an emergency room, a spiritual hospital for sinners, people who are patched up by his unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Jesus would want that flower. Amen. And in the same way, Jesus saves completely those who have been tainted, who have been stained by sin. That's why he came. And when he shed his blood on the cross, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were washed away. And not only that, he clothed us with his own righteousness, and we are saved completely, thoroughly, fully. We are saved. Why was the shedding of blood necessary? to forgive our sins. I mean, if God were so compassionate, why couldn't he simply uh, slide our sins underneath the rug and kind of wink and say, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. Oh, well, let's just let this slide. Why was a picture so graphic as the slaughter of countless sheep and goats throughout the generations necessary to paint a picture of the reality of Jesus Christ on the cross? Why was that necessary? I just think that we have to revisit how utterly holy God is, how utterly supreme He is, how utterly glorious He is. For example, when God spoke the universe into existence, He told stars that are so large, a hundred thousand of our suns could fit into these stars. He told them where they should be suspended in space, and they said, yes, sir, and they took their place. He told planets where they could orbit around these stars and how far they could come and how far they could stray and what their rotation would be. And these planets, countless millions of planets said, yes, sir. And on planet Earth, he stacked the mountains 10,000 feet high and the valleys 20,000 feet deep. And he told the oceans exactly where it could come. And the oceans said, yes, sir. And then he looked at the apex, the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. And he said, your purpose is to worship me. Your purpose is to fellowship with me. Your purpose is to bring me glory, is you're the recipient of my love and a relationship with me. And mankind, you and me, said, forget it. We said no, like an insolent, stubborn dog. We said no. 
And we, in essence, charged God in his throne room, and we would have toppled him if we could. And we didn't just break a rule, we broke a relationship. We didn't just break a rule, we broke the very heart of God when we sinned against God. And this was no small deal. We didn't just coast through a stop sign, we committed celestial high treason when we sinned against the holy God. And there's a price for that, there's a consequence for that. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. This is how utterly holy God is, and this is how utterly insolent we are. We've sinned, you've sinned, I've sinned, and the result of that is death. Can you experience, can you relate to that death sentence in your heart? Maybe you can feel the emptiness in your heart. We die spiritually. We die emotionally as a result of that spiritual death. And then we die physically. And then we die eternally, forever. But blood is necessary because God said the wages of sin is death. That's how holy I am. That's how sinful you are. But this is how loving I am. I would rather go to the cross for you. I would rather shed my blood for you than to live in heaven without you. So Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. And when he said, it is finished, price paid in full, our sins were forgiven. The price was paid for. And the Hebrews were trying to run back to this Levitical system that didn't remove one sin. It was just a picture of the reality in Jesus Christ. So instead of running back to that Levitical system, we simply rest in the security of our salvation. There were two interesting characteristics about Melchizedek. One interesting characteristic was, now he's a type of Christ, he's a picture of Christ. Some people think he's so mysterious that he was Jesus Christ himself making an appearance in the Old Testament. Could be. Some say, well, he's just a copy of a picture. He's, a, he, he's, a, he's an image of Jesus Christ. He, he gives us insight into Christ. Because we don't read about this Melchizedek, who his parents were or where he was born. And we don't read about him when he died. He simply came onto the scene and then he disappears. And so from that, unlike the Levitical priesthood that had a priest who would take office and die And then another priest would take office and die. And they wouldn't serve perpetually, but temporarily. And they would offer sacrifices of a lamb or a goat or a sheep once a year, year after year after year, because the animal sacrifices never remove sin. Jesus isn't like that Levitical priesthood. Jesus is much more like Melchizedek. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's not simply a good man or a teacher. He is God. He lives forever, and God came to earth, and he didn't offer the blood of goats or sheep, but he offered his own blood. And he didn't just go into the Holy of Holies, but when he paid the price for our sins and the veil was ripped from the top to the bottom, he in essence stood in heaven, the holiest of holies, and declared you and me forgiven and righteous if we rest securely in that salvation. So we read that Jesus is able to save us completely, and we also read that he lives to intercede for us. Isn't that amazing? He saves us completely. This is the completed work of Christ on the cross, but he also lives to intercede for us. This is the continued work of Christ in heaven. The completed work of Christ on the cross. This is the substitutionary death of Jesus for us. The continual work of Christ in heaven, this is the 
This is the intercessory, the intercessory work of Christ as he lives to intercede and to pray for us. So I have a question for you guys. Where is Jesus right now? Anybody want to take a guess? He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, isn't he? Well, I thought Jesus is in our heart if we're believers. He is through the person of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, with his nail scarred hands, is at the right hand of the Father right now. And what's he doing? He's interceding for us. Because not only does Jesus supply our salvation through the blood of Christ, but Jesus also sustains our salvation. So let's go back to the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. And let's take a glimpse at chapter 9 in verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies, in verse 4, which had the golden altar of incense. And this is a copy of the reality. This is a picture of the prayers of the saints of the people. And it's incense. It's a sweet aroma to him. And just as you are absolutely, entirely dependent upon the blood of Jesus for your salvation, and you can't add to that one bit through good works, you have to completely rely on Jesus for your salvation, we are also 100% dependent upon Jesus Christ to sustain that salvation. See, Jesus doesn't save us, and we finish it by holding on to him. He saves us, and he holds on to us. When I had surgery Wednesday... About 7.30 a.m., I'm laying down on the table, and they're putting the oxygen mask over me, and they say, just breathe deep. And then they say, the last words I remember, they said, night, night. (laughs) (laughs) And then, about two hours later, I woke up. I didn't know it was two hours. I just remember being out, and then it seemed like a second later, I woke up, and the next nurse said, well, good morning. And I just shared that story to say, I didn't assist my surgeon. I was out. He did all of the work. And in the same way, we weren't just out. We weren't just asleep when Jesus saved us and when he sustains us. When he saved us, we weren't just out. We were dead in our transgressions. We didn't help him an ounce. We simply trusted in him and he saved us. And not only that, he sustains us. And In case you're thinking that perhaps God doesn't want to hear your voice, in the Holy of Holies, there was an incense, and it was a sweet aroma, and that represents your prayers. It's a picture of your prayers. So God is saying, whatever you have done, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And then the golden Ark of the Covenant, and this contained the jar of manna. That, That was a picture of how God provided for his people every single morning. You wake up in the morning and you have a pulse. That means uh, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. His mercies are new every morning. God has carried you this far. He will continue to carry you all the way. He will provide for you every day. And I love the fact that we see Aaron's staff that had budded. That means that, that prayers that you have prayed that seem to have died, dreams that you've had on your heart that have seemed to have died, hopes that you had that have seemed to have died can experience resurrection life again. And it may not look exactly like you thought it might look, but it's going to look exceedingly beyond anything you would ever dare to ask or imagine. We just have to continue to trust our Savior and our Sustainer every single day.
And then above the ark, there were cherubim and they were over the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where the blood of, of the animals was sprinkled. And that's a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the only thing that saves us. And the blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that sustains us. In 1935, there was a very famous mayor in New York City. In fact, the airport is named after him, LaGuardia. He was a very colorful figure. He would, he would, this mayor would get in the fire trucks and he would, you know, he would ride and help the firemen put out fires. He would, he would jump in police cars and go with the police on raids. He was known to take uh, entire orphanages to baseball games. Well, one cold, wintry day, uh, Mayor LaGuardia, uh, he was serving as judge, and he, he turned on the lights to the courtroom and sat down on the bench, and uh, it, was a, it was a day that there was a lot of people in the room, and this one lady, she was a grandmother. She was arrested because she stole a piece of bread from a baker, and she stole the piece of bread because her, um, her granddaughter was living with her. And her granddaughter was sick, so she was also raising the grandkids, and uh, the grandkids were starving to death. This is 1935. This was during the Great Depression. So uh, Mayor LaGuardia, he looked at the baker, and he encouraged him to drop the charges. And the baker said, I'm not going to drop the charges. It's a rough city out there. People need to learn, or the city's only going to get worse. And so Mayor LaGuardia said, okay, well, 10 days in jail or $10, which was a lot of money back then. He slammed the gavel, but no sooner did he slam the gavel that he also reached into his coat pocket and he pulled out his wallet and he put the $10 on the bench and he told the lady, I'm going to pay for your fine. And then he told everybody in the courtroom, and everybody in the courtroom is also fined 50 cents because you live in a city where a grandmother has to steal in order to feed her starving grandkids. The New York Times reported the next day that $47.50 was collected to give to the grandmother. What a beautiful picture that is. The salvation in Christ is not only Christ paying the price of our sins with his own blood. He saves us. But he also sustains us until we get to heaven. And he sustains us by delighting in our prayers. He sustains us by providing for us every morning. He sustains us by, by bringing resurrection life to our prayers and our hopes and our dreams. He sustains us with His unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. I remember, as a kid in Lubbock, Texas, there was a, a water tower behind our house on 48th Street. And the water tower it just towered over all the houses. And so we would get on our bikes, and we would ride all around the neighborhood. And sometimes we'd get turned around. Sometimes we'd get lost. And any time we'd get lost, all we'd have to do to get our bearings straight was find the water tower somewhere in the landscape and just start pedaling our bikes towards the water tower, and we'd make it home. And in the same way, sometimes in life when we get um, our bearings confused, Sometimes we start living for selfish ambitions. Sometimes we start running away from God instead of running to God. Sometimes we start questioning whether or not Jesus still loves us or whether or not he still has a plan for us or whether or not the best is still yet to come or whether or not he can still use us. We just have to find that water tower 
And that is the cross of Jesus Christ that towers over the landscape of all of history. And it says, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, it doesn't matter. Please, come home. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. And he sustains that salvation through his spirit and his unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And as surely as he saved us, he will bring us home. And as surely as we were out for the 10 count when he saved us, we are that dependent upon his hand to bring us home. Because salvation is not our grip on Jesus, because our grip loosens from time to time. Salvation is his grip on us. You see, the Hebrews' temptation to return to this Levitical priesthood, it wasn't so much that they missed the the screams of the animals and the slaughter and the blood of the animals. It's just that they wanted to take salvation and put it back into their hands. And they wanted to, to, to help sustain their salvation. He saves us. He sustains us. And that frees us up to have a clean conscience, to seek Him with all of our heart and to enjoy Him. But, just as these photos weren't God, they were pictures of God, We must return to God. And we return to God by repenting and by surrendering our lives to Him. And the beautiful thing is, just as we opened up talking about the the pictures of God that remind us of the relationship that God wants to have with us, whether it's a, a, a picture of God in the sunset that reminds us of the fellowship, or a picture of God in the stars that remind us of His promises that remain, or a picture of God and the smile of a stranger, or a picture of God and the faithfulness of a friend. When we repent of our sins and return to God, I think the most beautiful thing about the gospel is at that point, we become a picture of God, reminding people of the relationship that God wants to have with them. I mentioned to you guys, I I got one of those late phone calls, and a few hours later, I was at the bedside of a stranger and uh, who was passing away, and I got to lead them to Christ, and it was such an honor. And for the family, to see a stranger do that, and that wasn't me, I have no goodness in me, that was Jesus in me that gave me that love. That was a picture of God for them saying, I love you more than you could ever imagine. I remember one time I was praying, God, I just need to be reminded that you love me. It was the year that we started our church. And no sooner did I pray that than two guys in a truck pulled up beside me and told me to roll down my window. And I rolled down my window and they pointed at me and said, Jesus loves you, man. Jesus loves you. They were a picture of God that reminded me of God. My nephew is in... um, Teen Challenge, an incredible Christ-centered rehab. They don't just focus on discipline, but being spirit-filled, and uh, he's doing incredible. And uh, God told him the other day, he was in Austin and with a group, and God told him, see that girl over there? Just go tell her God loves you. And no sooner did he start to speak the words, thinking she's going to think I'm crazy. No sooner did he start speaking the words that, you know, there was a lump in his throat and tears in his eyes and tears just started streaming down her face as he said, Jesus loves you, and it's going to be okay. He was a picture of Jesus. And so perhaps this morning, you need to look at the cross 
and be reminded of your salvation. Perhaps you need to repent and return to Christ with your whole heart and live a life of surrender so that everywhere you go, you're a picture of the love of Christ beckoning people home. Would you stand with me, please? So if you would just bow your heads. You know, we talked about a lot of things, and it's a difficult three chapters, seven, eight, and nine. I encourage you to read it and reread it and reread it, and we'll be in heaven for 10,000 years and still exploring the depths of Hebrews 7, 8, and 9. But in short, know that it's a picture of the cross of Christ, and Jesus is saying, I love you so much, I would rather shed every last drop of blood I have for you. I'd rather be beaten, I'd rather be humiliated, I'd rather be slaughtered in order to pay for your sins so that I can, I can wipe your sins out and clothe you with my righteousness than to spend forever with you in heaven. Jesus saves us and Jesus sustains us. I wonder just as a testimony, how many of you would just raise your hands high and you would say, I know that I'm saved. I, I rest in that salvation. I'm secure in that. Okay, awesome. You can put your hands down. I wonder how many of you would say, you know, I feel like maybe I'm, I have anxiety when it comes to this thing called salvation, and I'm not certain of it, and I need to rest securely in it. I, I'm not certain of it, um, but I want to be certain. I would just like to pray for you if you would raise your hand high, if you would just let me pray for you. Okay, God bless you. God bless you. All right, well, we're just going to pray with you, and I want to encourage everybody in the room to pray. Now, understand this. It's not, it's not words. It's not a magic spell. It's your heart transferring your confidence from yourself to what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. And we just want to pray with you and pray this boldly and transfer your heart's confidence to Christ. Pray in an audible voice, a bold voice. God, I know that I've sinned. And there's a price for my sins. And that's death. But thank you that your love is greater than my sin. And you chose to pay for my sin on the cross. And I trust in that. I place my confidence in what you've done for me. And I open up my heart to you, Jesus. And I surrender my whole life to you. I trust that you will be the forgiver of my sins. And I ask you to take the reins of my life and be my Lord. And perhaps you've been a Christian, but you've, you've lost your passion. And you just need to be reminded that God is saying to you, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Just come home. Just come home. Yes, you need to repent and surrender your life to Christ again. And if that's you, I would just like to pray this prayer over you. God, there's people here who need to repent. And in fact, if that's you, you're a Christian, but it's time that you come home with your whole heart. Just raise your hand. I would just like to pray over you. Raise it high. Father, you see these hands. And Lord, these are children that are coming home. They're turning their heart toward you. Uh, this world has nothing for us. Lord, it's empty. It's a dry and weary land where there is no water. Uh, from success to, to, to quick fixes, this world has nothing for us. Nothing that can give us life. Nothing that can satisfy our heart. Lord, you are the only thing that gives us life. And we return to you. 
the one who loves us and gave himself up for us and conquered death for us. We return to you. To you be the glory, Lord. Thank you for taking us back. And I wonder if some of you guys, you just need to, you just need to recommit to being a picture of God everywhere you go, of being a picture of the gospel, to being the love of Christ. Because as we said earlier, Jesus didn't die on the cross to build a museum for saints, polished and refined saints. You really think that God is so shallow and so superficial? We're talking about the King of Kings and the Lord of glory. Do you really think that he could be impressed with any eloquence or charisma or financial stature or political stature or social stature that we could ever bring to the table? Do you think any of this could ever attribute any glory to Jesus? He did not come to establish a museum for the saints, but a hospital, an emergency room for sinners, for the spiritually lost, hurting, and hopeless. And the healing balm is the unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ that's also witnessed through his church family. And perhaps you just need to re-up for being his hands and feet. Would you bow your heads? And if that's you, do you need to re-up to being the hands and feet of Jesus? Just raise your hand. I would like to pray over you. Father, you see these hands, I pray for an evangelistic fervor, an evangelistic anointing. I pray for boldness. I pray for love that overshadows fear. I pray for divine encounters. I pray that you would place the spiritually lost, hurting, and hopeless in our path. I pray for boldness, that we would be your hands and feet to everyone, everywhere. When people look at us, Lord, may they not see us. May they see the gospel through us, your unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness, pleading with them to come home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.